G'day everyone, I'm your host Stephen, and welcome to another episode of the Bamboo History Podcast. Before we begin, just wanted to remind you to all subscribe to my podcast and follow my Instagram page. Details are in the description box below. This episode is the second part of a two-part series of the Taiping Rebellion. In the first part in last week's episode, we explored how the leader of the Taiping Rebellion, Hong Xiuquan, was influenced by Christianity and believing that as the second son of God, he had a mission to get rid of the evil demons that were plaguing China, which was in his mind the Qing dynasty government. He converted himself to Christianity, started a Christianity sect called the Bai Shang Di Hui, and with his Christian followers, started a rebellion in 1851, and in 1853, within two years, captured the city of Nanjing and renamed it Tianjin, which means the heavenly capital for his heavenly kingdom. And in Chinese, his heavenly kingdom was named the Taiping Tianguo. This created severe headaches for the Qing government based in Beijing in northern China. With the momentum on his side, and with most of the Qing government's military destroyed, now was the perfect opportunity for the Taiping rebels to launch an attack on northern China, capture the capital of Beijing, remove the ethnic Manchu rulers, and get rid of the evil demons from China once and for all, completing Hong Xiuquan's mission that was given by his father, God. But no, they didn't do that. When the Taiping rebels captured Tianjin, they were mesmerized by this city, and they didn't want to leave. Remember, most of these rebels came from backwater villages, and many were dirt poor, so they had never lived in a city as big as this. It's sort of like if you grew up in a poor farming village all your entire life, and then all of a sudden moved to Manhattan, New York. Yeah, Tianjin had things the rebels never knew of. Restaurants, bars, gambling dens, brothels, everything that they could dream of. Tianjin was definitely the heavenly capital, because it was heaven for them to indulge in whatever they wanted. Hong Xiuquan also took a back seat as well, and decided to have some fun too. I mean, the man's got a palace now for heaven's sake, no pun intended. So he took a break and let his lieutenants do most of the managing. So what did he do during his break? Well, usually Christian leaders such as the Pope or bishops are under clerical celibacy, which means they can't marry or get intimate with women. But as the leader of the Taiping rebels and the leader of his own Christian sect, the Bai Shang Di Hui, he bent the rules for himself. And I say that because he indulged with his wives in his palace. And he had a lot of wives, apparently around a hundred, which he accrued over the years. Honestly, that's just ridiculous, especially as a Christian leader. It's more ridiculous considering that the Taiping rebels had a rule that he created, that men and women in their groups weren't allowed to engage in intimate relationships, even if they were husband and wife. So yeah, Hong Xiuquan's a mad hypocrite as well. After half a year or so of partying, the Taiping rebels finally decided to go for the jugular and attack the Qing government in Beijing. Hong Xiuquan appointed his right-hand man, Yang Xiuqing, spelt Y-A-N-G-X-I-U-Q-I-N-G, 
to command the rebel army whilst he stayed in his palace, not wanting to part with his wives. Yang Xiuqin grew up in rural southern China and was a charcoal burner by trade before he joined the rebel cause. A charcoal burner leading an army? Haha, <laughs> I think he's a bit underqualified, don't you think? And he was, because his plans didn't really turn out the way he would have hoped. He launched two expeditions, a northern expedition where half his army would directly advance north and take Beijing, the Qing dynasty capital, while the other half of his army would head west and then northwards and pincer the Qing army from behind. Both these expeditions ended up failing. The northern expedition failed because the rebels lacked preparation, probably most likely due to overconfidence and belief that the Qing government would buckle. But the Qing still had 100,000 soldiers in northern China that they could use to defend with, whilst the rebels only took 20,000 men with them. That's like getting outnumbered 1 to 5. The rebels just didn't have the numbers against the Qing defenders. Winter had also come during that period, and most of the rebels, who were from southern China, were used to the warmer southern climates and couldn't cope with the freezing winter in the north. I mean, all these rebels hadn't even seen snow before. They were like, Hey, mate, what's this weird white stuff coming from the sky and hitting me on, f and hitting me on the face? There were also tactical blunders, such as not directly attacking Beijing during the actual expedition, but attacking nearby cities instead first, which again, gave the Qing government time to get reinforcements and fight back. Hence, after two years, in the year 1855, the rebels retreated, resulting in their first major fail in the rebellion. On the other hand, the Western expedition organised by Yang Xiuqing at first moved successfully down the Yangtze River and made some good ground, but then they ran into a bit of a problem. That problem was Zheng Guofan's Xiang army. I would like to mention a couple of points to establish some context. Firstly, the Taiping Heavenly Kingdom had ravaged all of southern China at that point, but they didn't actually have absolute control. Rather, they only controlled pockets of land in southern China. This was because once they took over a city, most of the time, the army would just simply move on entirely and not actually consolidate control of the city or land they had just conquered. This meant that the Qing still had places in southern China that were under their control. Hence, and secondly, the Qing government ordered local government officials to recruit their own armies to fight the rebels. One of these officials was a guy named Zheng Guofan, spelt Z-E-N-G-G-U-O-F-A-N, from the Hunan province, one of the earlier regions that had been overrun by the rebels. In the year 1852, Zheng Guofan receives an imperial edict from the emperor to raise an army to fight the rebels, and he ends up raising an army of around 17,000 people, all from the same place as he is in Hunan, and his army becomes known as the Xiang Army, spelt X-I-A-N-G, or in Chinese, Xiangjun, which means in English, the army from Hunan. In 1853, Zheng Guofan's Xiang army begins their fight against the rebels. Initially, due to Zheng Guofan's inexperience in warfare, they lose against the rebels. 
but the Qing government persists in their support to him, and eventually the Xiang army turns the tide and begins defeating the rebels, battle after battle. To all our listeners, you must be wondering, why was the Xiang army, a locally recruited army, effective at fighting the Taiping rebels, while the main Qing army wasn't? The main reason came down to how the Xiang army was recruited. As I mentioned in the last episode, the existing Qing army consisted of the Eight Banners army and the Green Standard army. Both armies were hereditary, which means that if you were a soldier, it meant that your father was a soldier and your grandfather was a soldier. And that meant your son and your grandsons would also be soldiers. The Xiang army, on the other hand, recruited people from all backgrounds, which meant whoever wanted to fight was able to join, creating new energy and morale in the group that boosted the Xiang army's ferocity in battle. In the Xiang army, the officers were all educated, whilst the average soldier was illiterate and uneducated, which meant the officers could easily command them in battle. The Xiang army was also organised based on where the soldiers and officers came from. For example, people from the same village would form a battalion, and people from the same family would form a platoon. The logic was that the soldiers would already know each other, and had strong family or friendship bonds. Therefore, they'd have better teamwork on the battlefield, and any death of a family member or friend would be personal to that group, motivating the survivors to fight harder to avenge them. Within a few years after the army was created in 1852, the Xiang army turned the tide against the rebels' western expedition, first recapturing important cities such as Wuchang in 1856, and then the city of Jiujiang further downstream on the Yangtze River in 1858. So on an external front, the rebels had given the Qing government time to regroup, and the Qing fought back hard. Internally, the Taiping rebels also had some problems that crept up as well. Because Hong Xiuquan had taken a step back, stayed in his palace, and let his lieutenants do all the fighting and management of the kingdom, his lieutenants began growing their own reputations in the rebel army, and became a threat to Hong Xiuquan's position as the emperor. One of these guys was Yang Xiuqing, that charcoal burner who was given command of the entire Taiping army by Hong, and failed in his attacks on the Qing. Yang Xiuqing rose up quickly in the ranks from being a charcoal burner, because he claimed he was possessed by the Holy Spirit, and was able to speak directly with God. This meant people thought that what he said was actually God's word, huh, and listened to him because of that. Even Hong Xiuquan had to listen to him, because he was just the second son of God, and not actually God, which Yang claimed he had a direct line with. As a result, Yang had started to take power from Hong gradually. In the year 1856, Yang Xiuqing decided he would have a crack at usurping the throne. He ordered three of the Taiping army's highest-ranked generals, Wei Changhui, Shi Dakai, and Qin Rigang, and their respective armies to go to separate parts of the kingdom far, far away from the capital. This was immediately a red flag for Hong Xiuquan, who thought, why is he taking all of my trusted generals and all their men away from me? Hmm. Hong Xiuquan immediately told the three of them to come back at once. Two of those generals, Wei Changhui and Qin Rigang, arrived first to meet up with Hong Xiuquan, who by now 
realized Yang's intent and ordered them to storm into Yang's residence and kill him. Yang Xiuqing, realizing the generals had returned back to the capital, tried to escape, but it was too late because those two generals, Wei Changhui and Qin Rigang, got to him first and killed him. Then, disobeying Hong's order to not kill the family members, they thought, yeah, what the heck, and murdered all of Yang Xiuqing's family members and followers as well. They then continued to hunt and kill thousands of other followers of Yang. When the last general, Shi Dakai, arrived in the capital Tianjin, Wei Changhui and Qin Rigang, the other two generals, were on a roll and also plotted to kill him as well. But Shi Dakai managed to escape with his men before they could, and so instead, they killed his whole family who were still in the capital. I mean, what? Why? I thought you guys were all friends. What, what, what's happening? Hong Xiuquan, seeing all of this indiscriminate killing done by Wei and Qin, became fearful of these two generals. And before both of them directed their minds to deal with Hong Xiuquan, Hong Xiuquan had them both killed, therefore establishing himself again as the ultimate ruler of the Taiping Kingdom. These courses of events are known as the Tianjin Incident and dramatically weakened the Taiping rebels as three of their top commanders, Yang Xiuqing, Wei Changhui, and Qin Rigang, as well as their respective followers and soldiers, all died in this incident. Shi Dakai, that last guy who escaped, also decided to break away from the Taiping rebel cause, believing Hong Xiuquan might go after him next. Hong Xiuquan was back as the top dog, but it was a bit late now because the Xiang army, combined with the main Qing army from the north, as well as other locally recruited armies, had reached the Taiping capital of Tianjin in the year 1862, and they besieged the city for two years, starving the people inside the city as the supplies ran low. Hong Xiuquan didn't want to surrender and ordered everyone to start eating wild grass and weeds, as he said those had been provided by God to help them survive. Maybe he was right in a way, or maybe God just wanted his second son back at his side, because Hong Xiuquan ate some of those weeds too, and uh, got food poisoning, and yeah, he died. So in the year 1864, 14 years after he started his quest, Hong Xiuquan, the second son of God, the younger brother of Jesus, the leader of the Taiping Heavenly Kingdom, the leader of the Bai Shangdi Hui, the God Worshippers Society, and the Hakka Chinese man who failed his test four times, died of food poisoning, aged 50 years old. As they say, God giveth, God taketh away. After Hong Xiuquan's death, the Xiang army entered the city, and that pretty much ended a 14-year-long civil war, where in the end, the religiously influenced Taiping Rebellion came to an end. There were some other loyalists that continued to hold on in various parts of southern China, but eventually they were all defeated by the Qing. The Taiping Rebellion was one of the bloodiest conflicts in modern history, and it was one of the bloodiest Chinese civil wars ever. The war was a total war, 
because civilians were also involved in the fighting as well, especially in the Taiping army, where the soldiers' families, wives, children, mothers, fathers also marched with the soldiers in battle. The Taiping army was also unique in China, in that women could also fight too, and there were army groups that consisted of female soldiers, for example, Hong Xiuquan's sister, Hong Xuanjiao, was a female general that commanded female soldiers. And that actually goes back to episode 6 of the Kurju exams. If you had noticed, they had opened those exams to females for a year, when they had never been open to females before. The Taiping Rebellion had several lasting impacts. Let's start with Zheng Guofan and the Xiang army from Hunan, the army that defeated the Taiping rebels. After the war, Zheng, knowing that his personally sourced army would be a concern for the Qing government, disbanded it, but it changed the Qing's policies of army recruitment and command structure. Future battles by the Qing were predominantly reliant on these locally sourced armies. This meant that the Qing government themselves did not have that many soldiers they controlled directly, and instead were reliant on individuals in government who recruited their own soldiers, who fought for the Qing. This created a big problem down the track, which was the emergence of warlords. The emergence of warlords would be a big factor that caused the downfall of the Qing dynasty. Now let's have a look at the Taiping rebels. As previously mentioned, the Taiping rebels consisted mainly of Hakka Chinese people. During the rebellion, as part of the quest to get rid of those Manchu demons, the Taiping rebels had launched waves of massacres against the Manchus. The most severe one was the one at Tianjin, their heavenly capital, where they killed all the Manchus living there, around 25,000 people, including women and children. After the rebellion was quashed, the Qing army retaliated, committing mass murder of Hakka Chinese in the southern provinces of Guangxi and Guangdong reportedly killing tens of thousands of Hakka Chinese per day. This triggered waves of emigration of the Hakka Chinese, who left China to avoid being persecuted and found homes in Southeast Asia, the Americas, and beyond. The Hakka Chinese also continued to engage in conflict with the local Han Chinese population as well, which is tragic, because despite this rebellion, which was supposed to improve the lives of the Hakka, as per Hong Xiuquan's words, it only got worse for them. So I'll say to Hong Xiuquan, thanks, thanks a lot mate, you really ruined it for your people. This is where I'll end my story of the Taiping Tianguo Heavenly Kingdom Rebellion, which lasted 14 years, cost endless numbers of lives, and destroyed the country, all because of a lunatic who thought he was God's second son and engaged in a deluded act of salvation. Call it as you will. I think the biggest takeaway of this is that if the Hakka people were not marginalised or oppressed, then this conflict may not have even started, or at least not have blown up to such proportions. Hence, this serves as a lesson to us all to be respectful of each other, regardless if we are from a different culture, race, sexual orientation, religion, etc. etc. Some people might struggle to do that at times. But even just small acts of inclusiveness, generosity, and kindness can go a long way to creating harmonious relationships that can prevent 
larger conflicts from happening in the future. So that's all today, my bamboo historians. I hope you found this two-part series interesting. And if you did, that's awesome. If not, send me some feedback so I can improve for next time. My contact details are in the description box below. Otherwise, sweet dreams, aha, uh-huh, get it? And I'll see you all next time on the Bamboo History Podcast. Bye for now.